You're listening to the Fresh Hell Podcast. Fresh Hell contains stories of a disturbing and often graphic nature and is intended for a mature audience. Please don't let your kids listen to this, or they might turn out like us. Hi, I'm Annie from the US. And I'm Johanna from Austria, and you are listening to your favorite international podcast. First of all, thank you again to everybody who voted for us in the nomination round of the People's Choice Podcast Awards. Yes. Uh, the slate was announced on Sunday night, and oh my god, you did it! We made the slate in all four categories we were in, which is female-hosted, true crime, history, and People's Choice. And I'm not gonna lie, the last one came as a huge surprise. Mostly I even forgot to mention that we are in that category as well, because all the nominated podcasts automatically go into the People's Choice category. And there are so many great podcasts. There were so many great podcasts nominated. Oh, yeah. I would have never thought we would be voted into that one as Mm -hmm. well. We weren't last year. Nope. We didn't make it into People's Choice. No. But you did it. And we are beyond thrilled. Now... Remember, not everybody will be able to vote for the final winners. The ones who have been randomly chosen should have already received an email with instructions on how to vote. So if you haven't checked yet, make also sure to check uh, your spam folder. If you were not chosen, don't be sad. You're all so amazing and supportive and we couldn't be happier. And if you were chosen to vote, please also check out the other categories and the other podcasts because... They all work so hard, and they all really deserve to be recognized. That's right. Yeah, this is really, this really is amazing. We did not expect this. So thank you so much for getting us this far. We are so appreciative. And I think we have to look into whether we can do a watch party for the award night. Like, I don't know, put on a dress? Definitely. We'll figure it out. (laughs) One last thing. I'm going to put on my pajamas because it's going to be 2 o'clock in the morning, it'll be but 2 you put on you. a dress. <laughs> <laughs> I'll put on my fanciest jammies, maybe a hat. And a special shout out to our newest patrons who are both murder patrons. Thank you to Rebecca S. Bach and Craig Henry. They're our two newest murder tier patrons. Welcome. Thank you so much for your support. You'll be getting a pin next month and keep uh, watching our feed for the next game night. Yeah. Oh, we have to set a date for that. We do. Yeah, we'll do that after and post it. Yeah. All right. I think that's it. Let's dive right into today's episode. Yeah? Yeah, let's. All right. So it's the second and final part of the Nell Cropsey murder case. If you haven't listened to last week's episode yet, please make sure to listen to that one first. So pause now and go to episode 164. Otherwise, you will have no idea what's going on. If you did listen last week, but need a refresher, here's a quick recap. It's in 1901, 19-year-old Nell Cropsey is living with her family in Elizabeth City, North Carolina. She has been dating 25-year-old Jim Wilcox for well over two years now, and they even talked about getting married. But the relationship is not a happy one. Nell confides in her mother that she is planning on ending the relationship due to Jim's aggressive outbursts. On the evening of 20th of November 1901, Nell was home with her sister Ollie, her sister's beau Roy Crawford, a cousin named Carrie Cropsey and Jim Wilcox. 
Around 11pm, Jim asked Nell to step out on the porch with him, he needed to talk to her. That was the last time her family saw the young girl alive. When questioned by the police and the family, Jim Wilcox, who was the last known person to see Nell, stated that he had returned some of Nell's items that evening and that he left her on the porch crying. He didn't know where she was or what happened to her. But of course, he was the number one suspect and so they arrested him. Nell's body was found 37 days after she went missing. She was floating face down in the river not far from her home. Jim Wilcox was now in jail, waiting for his trial, and the police had their hands full trying to protect him from the lynch mob. And that's pretty much where we left off last week, with the police trying to get Jim Wilcox transferred to another prison to keep him alive. Also, quick content note, we will be talking about suicide this week. Okay, now let's talk about the trial. The trial started on March 13th, 1902, in Elizabeth City, which is a little bit of a problematic setting, given that's where the young woman had lived, was murdered, and where everyone knew about the crime and the alleged murderer. The town where Nell's father was a judge, and where Jim Wilcox's father was the former sheriff. I have no idea why they thought this was the right place to guarantee a fair trial, and I looked it up because I was trying to figure it out. I know that in the mid-1800s, this was happening in the UK, they would move the location, but I couldn't find out when the first time it happened in the US was. The only thing I found really of interest were a few more disturbing old cases I hadn't heard of before, so it wasn't a wasted search, but... I don't know whether they could move venue or not. Probably not. Yeah, you're right. If they mm. could, they should have. But in any case, they picked out the jurors out of 235 possible prospects. And apparently one of the chosen jurors had already been a juror at a trial against Jim Wilcox's uncle, who was charged for manslaughter. But he was acquitted. He was. But I'm not judging. I just feel like that's maybe too many killers in one family. Mm. Or alleged. Kind of. yeah. Allegedly. And of course, this trial attracted huge crowds. Courtroom was packed. Several witnesses were called in on both sides. Jim Wilcox's defense was that Nell was mad because Jim still hadn't proposed to her. She had started to drop little hints that she wanted to get married. But when Jim didn't pop the question, she would then flirt with other men trying to make him jealous. And she would often start fights with him, getting angry and sending him away, telling him she didn't want to see him anymore. And then a little while later, she'd call for him again. But before her disappearance, she had told him that she wanted all of her belongings back. Jim Wilcox, tired of the games, then returned her stuff just as Nell had asked for, and she was in shock and started crying, sending him away once and for all. So basically, it sounds like he called her bluff and she did not take it well, according to him. Also according to him, she might have been so upset about the breakup that it's possible she walked down to the river and intentionally drowned herself. Other witnesses on the defense side were the one friend who had run into Jim that night and a few other people mostly testifying to his character. They all pretty much said that, yeah, Jim Wilcox was a weirdo. He was a really strange young man, and he was often awkward in social settings. He wasn't great with social cues, but that he was never aggressive or had anger issues. I don't know about that. Anyway, the prosecutor then paints a totally different picture of a very aggressive, jealous, angry man who just couldn't take it when the beautiful woman didn't want to be with him anymore. They even presented a witness who testified that he had seen someone who looked like Jim Wilcox carrying a body down to the boathouse. 
But the most emotional testimony came from Nell's sister, Ollie, who was with her that fateful evening, when she talked about the moment that they realized Nell was missing, and then when her body was found 37 days later. She broke down crying, and by the end of her testimony, the jury and the lawyers were also wiping away tears. Ollie testified that Jim Wilcox was jealous, that Nell and Jim would often fight, and that Nell wanted to end the relationship, and that she was very excited about the upcoming trip to New York. The following comes from the News and Observer from Raleigh, North Carolina, 18th of March, 1902, page 1. These are excerpts. Quote, Ollie Cropsey's story. Miss Ollie Cropsey was called. She is a tall, sweet-faced, fair-haired young woman. She talked in a low, sad tone that was several times choked by sobs. She wore a dark coat with a high collar and a neatly made black suit. Miss Cropsey said in part, quote, Last fall they quarreled. It was in September when I heard them having little spats. I heard Nell say to Jim, If you're going to act like this the rest of the season, you can stay home. Nell went to religious meetings and joined the Methodist Church in October. Jim used to wait at the church door and go home with Nell. For a while, they did not speak. Carrie came to visit us, and they began speaking again. That night, Jim came again. We knew his ring. Carrie answered the bell. Nell was fixing the lining of the coat she was going to wear to New York. Jim sat on the rocker. He was very still and continued to look at his watch and compare it with our clock. He and Nell did not speak. There was music. Nell said she could not get enough music. When water was mentioned, Jim said that he didn't want any, for he might poison the glass. Mama, Papa, Uncle Hen, and Carrie went to bed. Roy Crawford was there. He said, quote, Nell, you're looking mighty sweet tonight. Jim pulled out his watch again at 11 o'clock and said his mama wanted him home then. I said, Jim, you're getting good. Jim rolled a cigarette and asked Nell if he might see her outside a minute. Nell did not answer but went. That was the first time she had been to the door with him in two or three weeks. I closed the door and could hear them talking. I never saw Nell alive after that. About two o'clock, Mr. Dawson and another man brought Jim. Jim came in, and Mama grabbed him by the arm and said, Jim, for my sake and your mother's sake, tell me where Nell is. Here, Ollie broke down with great sobs, and business was suspended for some minutes. The great crowd was deathly still, and there were many moist eyes. It was a dramatic scene. Finally, the witness continued. Jim answered, quote, I will swear and kiss a Bible I don't know. I left her on the Piaggia crying. Later, someone said Nell had been found. Jim walked over to the window. I saw his hand shaking, and Mama felt his arms tremble. On cross-examination, lawyer Aidlet brought out from Miss Ollie that there had been a conversation about suicide that night at the Cropsey home. She said the subject had been suggested by either Jim or Carrie. Wilcox said he would prefer drowning. He had been nearly drowned once and said it was a delightful sensation. Nell said she would rather freeze to death. It would make her hair come out so straight to be in the water, dead. End quote. So, yeah. I honestly think it's interesting that they had discussed suicide that evening. I guess that testimony was what convinced the jury that Nell had not died by suicide that night, and, of course, the, the, the wound to her left temple. Their cousin, Carrie Cropsey, testified as well, pretty much verifying what Ollie had said. And then a lot of talk was about the measurements of distances. You know, how far would Jim have to walk to the different spots, and how long would it take him? So this is from the same article. Quote, 
H.T. Greenleaf testifies. H.T. Greenleaf, a civil engineer who had measured distances about the Cropsey home, was sworn. A large map was introduced showing the whole scene, but defense objected and the prosecution withdrew it. Judge Jones instructed the jury not to consider what impressions had been received from the map. Some of the measurements had been made by him and some by his son, Harry T. Greenleaf, who was also sworn. Here are some of the distances given by them. From Cropsey Steps to Front Gate, 66 feet. Width of Road, 32 feet. From Steps to River Edge, 211 feet. From Cropsey Place to Point Opposite Pier, 850 feet. From that point to pier, 498 feet. From front gate to Ives House were Owen so Wilcox, 2,562 feet. Greenleaf Sr. said it is nearer from Cropsey to Ives than it is from Barnes Bar to Ives. Owens and Wilcox met near Ives about 11.45 p.m. So, after I think it was a little bit over one and a half weeks, uh, the trial t- uh, lasted. It did take the jury 30 hours to deliberate. They really took their duty seriously to even ask for the judge's instructions once more while they were trying to find a verdict. People outside of the courthouse were breathlessly waiting for the trial to come to an end. And I love this quote from the Daily Times from Richmond, Virginia from the 23rd of March 1902 from page 1. Quote, The verdict follows a strain on the people that had reached the snapping point. People lingered on the streets all day, missed their meals, made their wives mad, excited their neighbors, said bad words, expressed displeasure at delayal because of the Wilcox case. All day and night the natives had waited on the jury's words, not patiently but anxiously, almost breathlessly. They could not see why it took them so long. On the streets, in the stores, around the offices, in hotel lobbies, everywhere. Nothing was talked of, nothing was thought of, but the jury's verdict and the way some folks discussed it would chill the blood. End quote. (laughs) Yeah, you know how much we focus on trials today. Can you even imagine back then with no other real diversions? You know what I mean? How... Plus everybody knew the people involved. Yes. Like it was their town, yeah. Yeah. So finally, the verdict came in on 23rd of March 1902 at 10.30am after the jury had deliberated, as we said, for 30 hours, and it read, guilty of murder in the first degree. And the long time the jury took to find a verdict pretty much shows that not everybody was 100% convinced that Jim Wilcox had really murdered Nell Cropsey. But in the end, he was found guilty, and most of the people in Elizabeth City were happy with the verdict and thought justice had been served. He was sentenced to death by hanging. Jim Wilcox didn't show any emotion when, the, when he heard those words. His execution date was set for 25th of April 1902, so only one month later. But Jim Wilcox did not die, not yet at least. He was not executed that day. The Supreme Court of North Carolina granted Wilcox a new trial, stating that the evidence was only circumstantial and that the jury might have been influenced by the behavior of the spectators. The Supreme Court of North Carolina stated the following, In reading the record, it hardly seems possible that the jury could have given the cautious, vigilant attention to the evidence which the law requires of them, or the presentation of the prisoner's case to them by his counsel was not given that thought which the importance of the case demanded. On the outside of the courthouse, great 
improprieties took place for the purpose of prejudicing the prisoner with the jury. No such demonstration were ever witnessed in our state before, and for the honor of the Commonwealth such ought not be repeated. The propriety of our ruling is strengthened by the circumstances that contempt proceedings were not commenced against those offending and that no motion was made to set the verdict aside and for a new trial after such unheard of demonstration. Counsel for the prisoner in his argument here in response to a question stated that if the verdict had been set aside, the prisoner would have met violent death in an instant. The prisoner must not only be tried according to forms of law, these forms being included in the expression the law of the land, but the trial must be unattained by such influences and such demonstrations of lawlessness and intimidation as were present on the former occasion. The courts must be for civilization for proper administration of the law in orderly proceedings. There must be a new trial in this case. End quote. So basically, the Supreme Court was like, there were so many shenanigans. There was so much crap happening that this was a circus and we're throwing it out and rejecting it as a, as a legit trial, basically. Which I think, fair enough. Yeah. Yep. I agree. Okay, so the new trial then was set for January 1903, and this time Jim Wilcox was indeed tried properly or lawfully as the Supreme Court had wanted. This time he was convicted of murder in the second degree, so meaning that this time the jury didn't think that the murder was premeditated. Just a quick reminder, the difference between first and second degree murder from Wikipedia, quote, first degree murder, any intentional killing that is willful and premeditated with malice aforethought. And in comparison to that, second degree murder, any intentional killing that is not premeditated or planned. A situation in which the killer intends only to inflict serious bodily harm, knowing this could result in death, but with no specific intent to kill, also constitutes second-degree murder. End quote. Yeah. So, you planned it in advance, first degree. You lost your temper, yeah. second degree. People often think that planning it in advance means, like, an hour, a day, a week, but it can also mean, like, really just a couple of minutes before you do it. That's right. Like, yeah. if you if you went home and got a gun, that's first degree, because what did you get yeah. the gun for, right? All right, so this time, Jim Wilcox was sentenced to 30 years hard labor in prison. However, in December of 1918, so after having served only half of his sentence, he received a visit from Thomas Walter Bickett, governor of North Carolina, who granted him a pardon. Bickett claimed the reason was the heartfelt letter that Wilcox had sent to him, once more swearing that he was innocent. That and the fact that Jim Wilcox had been a model prisoner in the last 15 years, even learning a trade and becoming an electrician, had moved Governor Brickett so much that he wanted to show mercy. And so it came that Jim Wilcox celebrated Christmas 1918 back at home with his family. Of course, some believe that Wilcox's father, the former sheriff, had played a role in getting that pardon, and, I mean, I think we can all see that as a possibility. Totally. Yeah. I don't blame him. Like, of course you're going to do anything you can if you're in a position to yeah, help. Yeah, of course. You know? Yeah. Especially when you think he's innocent. Of course. He's yeah. Yeah. All right. So after 15 years at the age of 41, James Wilcox was a free man again, and he went back to the place that he knew best, Elizabeth City. Now you'd think the good people of Elizabeth City wouldn't accept a murderer living with them, but apparently they did give him a second chance. 
First of all, he was pardoned, and if it was good enough for the governor, it was good enough for them. And second of all, they'd realized that all the evidence against him was somewhat circumstantial. And so they opened their hearts a little bit and welcomed Jim Wilcox back to town. He got a job with the fire department, but that didn't last too long. Soon, Jim Wilcox began to drink, he became mean and bitter, and got into a lot of fights. He became reclusive and argumentative and, you know, it wasn't a good scene. He lost his job, his family was gone. We know his parents passed, we think the sister had moved away, but we're not 100% sure. Either way, he found himself alone and was very much haunted by the past. Some people would definitely still talk to him, they'd buy him drinks, but only for one reason. They were all hoping they could loosen his tongue with some booze and he would tell them what he did to Nell Cropsey. But that never happened. He never told anybody the truth about that night. A good Samaritan, a man named John Tuttle, took him in and gave him a small back room in his garage with a bed to sleep in and daily meals. There, on the 4th of December, 1934, Jim Wilcox died by suicide with a shotgun. Jim Wilcox is buried in Elizabeth City, and to this day there are people who believe his desperate claims of innocence. It's just too bad he never confided in anyone, right? All right. I think it's time to talk about some of the theories and lore and myths Mm. and some more facts. So here's a little bit of lore. It's rumored that in 1933, Jim Wilcox had met with an author, journalist, and editor, W.O. Saunders. He was working as an editor for a newspaper in Elizabeth City. He allegedly told Saunders everything about the night Nell Cropsey had died. Saunders was so impressed by the tale that he immediately wanted to write a book about the case, but unfortunately, it would never be written, and no one knows what Jim Wilcox might have told Saunders, because a year later, Jim died by suicide, and Saunders died shortly thereafter in a car accident. It's kind of creepy, right? But is it true? I mean, it's true that W.O. Saunders had lived and worked in Elizabeth City on and off, but definitely from the late 1920s to 1937. He was also an opponent of the death penalty, so I can see him having interest in Wilcox's Mm. story. The only thing that was probably just added, making it more eerie, is the he died shortly after Wilcox. But it depends on what you consider to be shortly after. Because Saunders died in 1940, so there was more than enough time to write about the case and about what Wilcox had told him. But if that story is even true... I guess after Jim Wilcox's death, Saunders just didn't want to go forward anymore with the book. I guess that was the reason. I mean... Ah, okay, now let's talk about the reasons why some people think Wilcox is innocent. I mean, apart from him swearing he was innocent and the fact that all the evidence was circumstantial. First of all, we need to talk about the letter. Uh, We mentioned it in the end of last week's episode, A Mysterious Letter. Now, if you have ever read about the murder of Nell Cropsey, you might have come across something about this. And the way it is often told is like this. On 24th of December, 1901, so three days before Nell was found, her father received an anonymous letter that had been posted in Utica, New York. The author of the letter claimed to know what had happened to Nell and that Jim Wilcox was innocent. They said that after Jim had left, Nell was wandering around the estate down to the gazebo and over to the barn, when she encountered a man who was about to steal one of their pigs. The pig thief, according to the letter someone the family knew, was scared that Nell would tell on him. And so he hit her on the head, carried her to the boathouse and rowed her lifeless body out on the river, where he threw her overboard. Okay, so William Hardy Cropsey allegedly receives this letter and then he does something very weird. He does nothing. 
He doesn't take it to the police. He basically ignores the letter. And when we read that, we were like, um, that's a bit odd. And honestly, we didn't believe that that even happened. We thought that was lore, right? And so we really wanted to make sure that this was actually true. So we searched through the newspapers of the time, and here's an article we found, and it seems to be true, but Mr. Cropsey is not the only one to receive that letter. So this is from the Durham Sun, uh, Durham, North Carolina, 2nd of February, 1903. Quote, Mysterious letter. Another man accused of the murder of Nell Cropsey. Elizabeth City, North Carolina, January 31st. Ex-Sheriff Wilcox believes he will be able to establish the innocence of his son, James E. Wilcox, who has twice been convicted of the murder of Miss Nellie Maud Cropsey. A new and important witness has been discovered in a mysterious person in Utica, New York. Sheriff Wilcox has received a letter from this person which declares that young Wilcox is innocent of the crime for which he has once been sentenced to death and now to 30 years in the North Carolina State Prison. The letter gives a detailed account on how the murder was committed and names and describes the person who committed the crime. It is in substance as follows. And now they are quoting the letter. Quote, Jim Wilcox left Miss Cropsey on the front steps crying as they had engaged in a quarrel and Jim returned her photograph and a parasol and had said something which wounded her feelings. She remained on the steps some time crying as she did not want to return to the parlor and let her sister and cousins know she had been crying. After she had been out some time and was starting into the house, the dog began to bark and she walked out into the front yard to see what the dog was barking at. The dog led her to a poplar tree or high shrubbery and there she found a man whom she recognized. He was disguised and she threatened to inform her father of his presence there at that hour of the night. This angered him and he struck her with a stick which he held in his hand. He did not intend to kill her and thought that he only stunned her, but thinking his punishment would only be more severe when she recovered, he carried her to the river and put her in a boat. He rowed near a mill not far away and placed her in a deep hole. When the search began for her, she was removed to a swamp and then, after the big reward was offered, she was put in the river just where she would be found. The man you want is, and here the article doesn't name the name, it's just a blank, and the article continues, or quoting the letter. This may not be exactly the way his name is spelled, but is the way it would sound if spoken. If there is more than one of this name, notify me and, it will s and I will send his first name. There is another person who has a guilty knowledge after the act and he will expect the reward. End quote. But the article continues. The name of the writer of the letter is withheld for reasons, but the American correspondent has the original letter. The letter is postmarked at Utica, New York, January 27th at 7 p.m. After this letter came into the possession of the correspondent, he went to the scene of the crime and found that all the directions given were correct. Mr. Cropsey, the father of the murdered girl, said today that on December 24th, 1901, three days before his daughter's body was found in the river, he received a letter from the same person in Utica, New York, accompanied by a diagram which showed just how the body was disposed of and informing him that his daughter's body would be found at a certain place in the river. On the 27th of December, three days after receiving this letter, the body of Miss Cropsey was found at the exact place mentioned in the letter from Utica. End quote. And apparently there was indeed a man with a similar name than the one named in the letter, you know, um, the name that we don't know, living in Elizabeth City. 
But somehow this whole letter business was not enough evidence to start a third trial. I don't know, what do we think about it? And what do you think is the reason why Nell's father did not do anything about this letter? I suspect my first thought would be, well, isn't it convenient that it was sent to the sheriff? And I love how every, we talked about it last week, but everybody still refers to him as the sheriff when he's actually the retired sheriff. So the letter wasn't sent to the sheriff of the town. The letter was sent to the suspect's, the accused's father and the victim's father. I just wonder, it makes me think that, I don't know, it, to me it makes him look more guilty. I feel like maybe he confessed what had actually happened to his father and then they came up with an idea to... But it wasn't you. It was somebody else to blame. Yeah. You know? I don't know. The letter would also explain why she was found 37 days later in the river, even though the river had been searched several times. And there's a lot of speculation about the fact and about the fact that her body showed almost no signs of decomposition. And it's, it's hard to figure out the lack of decomp. We also received an email from a listener. Hi, Doug. And he wrote us about the state that bodies are in when they've been in the water for a long period of time. And he said that the skin is almost gelatinous, which is correct, and was not the situation here. At least not that we know right. of, right? I mean, we can just go after the descriptions. So yeah, that was one of the things I was thinking about. I mean, yeah, it was winter, but winter in North Carolina is not like rivers are frozen constantly. Right. I, I checked. I found the weather for Raleigh, North Carolina for December of 1901. So that's 267 kilometers or 166 miles west of Elizabeth City. So I hope the climate is very much comparable, even though Elizabeth City is a port town. Yeah. So what I found is that the highs are between minus 3.8 and plus 21 degrees Celsius or 25 to 70 degrees Fahrenheit. And the lows are minus 12 to six to plus 16 degrees Celsius, which is 10 to 61 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's very different uh, from winter here or where any lives, where it's usually a more consistent temperature in winter. To me, it's actually a bit curious that her body showed almost no signs of decomposition with this kind of changing temperatures. Apparently, the only organ that did indeed show decomposition was the brain. But then, on the other hand, water, and especially a river, does hold the temperature more consistent. Or Yeah, I mean, that's what I would have thought, that it would be snow melt, you know, that would be contributing, or... I don't know, but my thought was maybe she was weighted down and kept at the bottom of the river, where the water would have been colder, and then rose as the internal decomposition process maybe had started. But also, if she had been put in a marsh, I really would have expected animal predation. True. That that yeah. letter has some problems. While doing the research, I had also read an article about the shore and the bottom of the river, how it's muddy in one place and sandy in another and in the vegetation there. And it kind of explained the reason why the body might have been not found before. And I was desperately trying to find it again. Do you know these kind of things when you have an article? Yes. And Yeah. I couldn't. So I really don't remember all the details, but it was an explanation on how Nell's body could have been caught underwater and, you know, only after a prolonged period of time, the gases that did build up in the body would cause it to rise. See, that's interesting too, because that means that it could have happened even without being weighed down. Like she could have yeah. just been snagged on something. Yeah. yeah. 
Also, let's not forget that the bloodhound they had brought in followed her scent down to the pier and the boathouse, so she probably really was taken away that way. Yeah, and of course there's also the explanation of her body being tied to a pier underwater, <sighs> which is from a really absolutely ridiculous article that we found from 1942. That article is is something. Yeah. Like, it's... I think it's a good idea. I think we should read it in Patreon, because... Yeah. It's... It's a lot. It's a lot. Yeah. Like, for example, it says that the night Nell disappeared, they were having a grand ball at the Cropsey home in honor of their cousin Carrie, and the girls' dance cards were totally filled. Carrie was the star of the ball in the most beautiful Southern Belle, and that all the other girls, especially Nell, were very, very jealous. It's insanity. Jim Wilcox is described as a law student, and that he was shocked and worried when he learned of Nell's disappearance, and that Ultimately, a psychic had been able to point them to Nellie's body. So you can see how this is all very problematic and incorrect. There is one other theory. Some people think that Nell's father had something to do with the murder, and that he was glad that Jim Wilcox was their suspect and scapegoat. I read about rumors that her dad did purchase ice blocks after Nell had disappeared, but it's 1901 in the South. They're a wealthy family. Purchasing ice blocks... That's normal. I think so, yeah. You don't want your meat to spoil. You want your milk to stay good. Yeah. I think the biggest reason for suspecting that Nell's dad, it's the fact that he didn't inform police about the mystery letter from Utica. But also, I think, if he thought the letter was a hoax set up by Wilcox, which was my immediate first thought, so I don't see how it wouldn't have been his. Yeah, exactly. Mine too, yeah. Right? Mm -hmm. Then he probably just would have been like, ugh, just shoved it in a drawer, right, and never told anybody about it because he thought it was bullshit. So I don't think him not notifying people is that Oh, crazy. I think the same. Yeah. yeah, you don't want to give legitimacy to nonsense. Also, there's something else that makes the whole case even more tragic. This is, it's awful and gives fuel to more rumors. So Jim Wilcox was not the only one involved in the case who would die by suicide. Nell's brother, William, he tragically died in 1913. He was only 28 years old, and he drank poison. The family, though, they really doubted that Will drank the poison voluntarily, and they always thought that he, too, might have been murdered. Which, I can understand that, especially yeah. if it's happened with one child, you know, and then to have the same thing happen with a second is awful. And then apparently also Roy Crawford, who was courting Ollie and was also there that night, also died by suicide sometime before Jim Wilcox shot himself. So some believe that Jim, Will, and Roy all knew what had happened to Nell that night, but that the person who did murder her was either her father or someone else known to the family. People who knew Jim in those years before he died said that he spent a lot of time writing down something, and then he did put it in a tin box and buried it somewhere. So is there really a tin box out there somewhere that would reveal the truth about Nell's murder? I don't know. What do we think? Who can say? Yeah. Was Jim Wilcox the murderer? What do you think? My gut tells me yes. Also, statistics show us that it's more likely to get murdered by an ex-partner after a breakup, you know, than by a stranger, for example, a guy stealing a peak from your farm. So I think he was the murderer. However, the evidence was indeed circumstantial. There are a lot of things that are very strange, and I think modern-day forensics could have cleared up so many things, so many mm -hmm. things. It's so often that I'm really sad that they weren't more advanced at that time. So I think there is a chance, however minimal, however small, that they did indeed prosecute the wrong man. 
I think Jim Wilcox was not really well liked in town. Uh, he, he even had phases where his own father wouldn't talk to him. Like they had a very, very strange relationship. He was described as a very odd character. His father and his mother were well liked. Like they were really praised as really good people. But Jim Wilcox was described as a very odd character. Yeah. For example, he would carry around snakes in his pockets and then throw them at people to scare them. Right. So can we talk about that just super quick? Because early on, everybody talks about how he's a little bit of an oddball, but like never hurt anyone. And I'm sorry. I love snakes. If someone threw a snake at me, what the... No, that's not... Like, that's not okay. I, it even gets worse. It even gets yeah. worse because he would also, he's described as riding around on his bicycle while holding a snake between his teeth. That's not nice. And I'm not a, f- a fan of any of that because leave those poor snakes alone, please. But also I'm thinking, I'm sorry if I sound, I don't know, what, what did she see in him? I don't know. Well, he came from a good family and. Yeah, probably. I don't know. So yeah, he was definitely considered the odd one in the community and he was described by some, not by all, I have to say, as having anger issues. What I can't see at all is Nell being jealous of Jim. No. Like, she's this beautiful young woman, she's excited for life, and I honestly trust her mom's testimony that she wanted to end the relationship. Yeah. However, even though I think Jim Wilcox did it, the case is definitely not a clear-cut case. No, it's not. And I agree with you. I think she was planning to break up with him for good. I don't think she was jealous of him. I think quite the opposite, probably. And I don't believe that she died by suicide. I think there's a really high probability, like you said, that it was a case of breakup violence. It could have even been accidental, right? Maybe he just wanted to hurt her because, or scare her, or, her. you know, mm. put her in her place. Because we know he likes to scare people. He thinks that's fun, right? Yeah, so, true. And he doesn't mind if he hurts other things to do it because just throwing any kind of animal, if it's not an insect out of your house, you know, like I just, anyway, I don't know. I just, like, as you said, without better forensics, it's all too circumstantial, but we're still not done with this case because we still need to discuss the haunting. It's been almost 121 years since Nell was murdered, and many, many people have lived in the Cropsey home since then. And we posted it on our Facebook group. There's like a Zillow link to it. You can look inside. It's good stuff. It's a beautiful house. Uh, But there have been some reports of strange happenings in that really beautiful house and around the grounds. So lights turn off and on. Water faucets and appliances do the same. Oh, yes, this sounds like my house. house. (laughs) (laughs) Doors open and close for no apparent reason. And sometimes they would feel cold gusts of air that would raise the hair on their neck. I mean, if it is like my house, probably they need new windows. But others have heard voices in the house. Yep. And on the front porch. I wonder if our ghosts are related to their ghosts, because this is all very familiar. Although this one is, this is probably the scariest. One inhabitant reported waking up in the middle of the night, and they saw a pale, sad-looking woman standing at the end of their bed. It's one of those seeing an apparition, like a full-body apparition. I can't decide if I want to or not. You know what I mean? No, I I don't want to. You don't want to? (laughs) No. I think that would be really, like, I mean, since we started the podcast, I came to terms with, with the fact that there are other things going on that I don't understand and don't know about. And, you know, especially after you lose somebody, you, you kind of see things differently. But I don't think I want to see it. I mean, if we are, for example, in a, in a haunted bed and breakfast, mm-hmm. 
I'm okay, but I don't want to see an apparition in my house. In your house. Like, no. Yeah. No, thank you. Yeah. I feel like I'd want to only to know exactly who was, to have a better idea of who was here. Mm. Because I've definitely seen, we've seen like a shadow move, but never, never a full body apparition. You know what I mean? I don't know. I just, yeah. I feel like I want to be able to address who's here. Anyway. So they have seen the full-bodied apparition of who seems to be Nell. And sometimes if you walk past the house late at night, you'll see a pale young woman behind one of the upstairs windows gazing out into the river. That's the best. Chills. Yeah. <laughs> one thing, the former Cropsey home, it is obviously a private residence. People live there. People's families are there. Don't go there and harass the people living there. Don't do it. The owners used to open the house up to the public on special occasions, and they do like ghost tours and historical tours. We don't know if that's still the case, but keep an eye out for those kinds of events or just, you know, admire from afar. Just Zillow stalk them. That's what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. And that is... That is it? That is the story of Nell Cropsey. It's so sad. I can't wait for the discussion on Facebook to see what others think happened. Yeah, there's been a lot of talk about this one on the Facebook group, so it's going to be good. All right. Something good. Podcast awards. Yeah, I think we both have to say yeah. something good this week, right? It's the podcast. Yeah. It's super exciting. Like I said, I was shocked, shocked, shocked. that we made it to all four categories. Shocked. shocked. I was. I think both of us were really... Like, all week I'd been saying to Paul, the competition is so much harder this year. There's yeah. no way. There's just yeah. no way. There's no way. There's so many, like, all of the podcasts are good, don't get me wrong. But then there are some that have a huge audience. And obviously, if you have a huge audience, you have a lot of people voting for you, right? Yeah. So. Absolutely. But yeah, that was really something. It's incredible. We appreciate you all so much. We cannot thank you enough for your votes. Also... Also, another personal milestone was met. We made a thousand reviews in the United States. Also, I've been pronouncing Oregon wrong. Or <laughs> Oregon? How do you say it? How do I say it? Yeah. Oregon? <laughs> I'm saying it with my Austrian accent, so I have, I'm having a free pass. We should make you say all the place names from now on. <laughs> I, I'm trying to think. I always thought it was, the, well, I feel like I must have had a teacher because I just remember saying, her saying, all right, now for the last 15 minutes, everybody can play the Oregon Trail. Oregon Trail is how that, that my teacher used to say it. So I think I've never thought about it. I don't think I say the word or Oregon that long, that often, rather. Hmm. Oregon. Oregon. I'm going to practice. I'm really sorry. No disrespect meant people of Oregon. Or Oregon. <laughs> Now it sounds wrong. Terribly wrong. I should have pinged Brendan. Brendan, how do you pronounce Oregon? This is our new uh, archipelago. Oh, yeah. Is it archipelago, though? <laughs> I don't know. <laughs> Jesus, now we're going to get another angry review. <laughs> uh, we love you. That word has been a long time problem for the two of us. <laughs> we can do it fine when we're not recording. It's anyway. true. It's, it's, that's the truth. I don't know what happens, but listen, I apologize to the state of Oregon and I apologize to the people who live along the Piscataqua River. I've probably still said, said that wrong. It's fine. All right. What else? You know what I'm thinking? You know what I'm thinking? This week, which is grateful, 
for everything our listeners have done so far. And we're just gonna leave it by that. Yeah. Yeah. And we're just gonna say, say hi to your pets, be kind to fellow human beings, and be kind to yourself, which is the hardest part of all. It really is. And that's it. Yeah. And just remember, if you're going through hell, keep going. Tschüss. Bye. Bye.